Plundergrounds, episode 99, the long-awaited call-in extravaganza. Well, I don't know about long-awaited. It's going to be long. (laughs) These are call-ins that I've had going all the way back to about June, and I'm going to address them blog-style, newest first, oldest last. So we will be moving backwards through time as we go through all these different ideas and revisit some old topics and squeeze a little extra juice out of them. Here we go. Plundergrounds. Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hey Ray, how you doing? It's just a bit of a random call in from out of left field from old Spike Pit. Just, um, I know you're a man, you like your lighter games and in particular lasers and feelings. And just recently, I've been, I've kind of got this hankering to do something with Star Trek. And looking at the Goon Jam and some of those type of systems, I just, I love these lighter games. And I don't know, if I was going to run Star Trek, I don't know why I would bother with like the 2D20 system or any of the like older systems, any of that stuff. I think I'll just get that lasers and feelings cast my memory back to old episodes of the original series of Star Trek, man, and I think I'll just run with it. Everybody knows the tropes. I mean, it sounds sounds perfect. I don't know why you would choose anything complex for Star Trek. It's perfectly made for a simple system. The genre itself has a lot of built-in system. The three branches of the service, as represented by their colors of the uniform, are almost each a way of life and a skill set. So you really don't need much of anything else. I love Star Trek. I'm an original series guy primarily. That's my favorite. I know a lot of people ground themselves in Next Generation, and that's a great series too. And I think like Deep Deep Space Nine probably had the best writing. Uh, and they're all similar enough that it just doesn't matter. Um, and they haven't all been great, but they've all been like on point uh, i think for the most part in regards to the you know the themes i even like discovery quite a bit i know a lot of people don't like that one so i had a couple of different thoughts uh one of them is that there for a long time i wanted to do a star trek style game but use legos i wanted to build like a two or three foot model of the spaceship and then i wanted to build out like maybe you know, 12 by 18 inch sets for the bridge, the medical bay, engineering, you know, some of the big, maybe a Jeffries tube or something, you know, like that kind of thing so that uh, we could have different settings within the ship and then a generic planet surface or two. Uh, I always love how the old Star Trek planets were, oh, I don't know, they're, they're kind of cheesily one thing, like one note. So you go down to the planet surface and often they'd be characterized by like a color filter or a prevailing weather pattern or they'd be primarily metropolitan. There'd just be one one aspect to kind of hang your hat on, like, oh, this is the desert planet, or this is the water planet, or this is the um, this is the planet that's all city. And I think it's not just Star Trek. Almost uh, all space shows do that. Certainly Star Wars does that. I mean, you got Tatooine is all desert, and, and uh, what's the Emperor's planet that's just all covered over in buildings? And so it's uh, that's a pretty old trope in, in science fiction television. 
And uh, let's see, what else do I have to say about that? Uh, okay, I, I have this to say about it. If you've never heard the song Red Shirt by Jonathan Colton, you have to go to YouTube and look that up and listen to it. I don't think you can find it anywhere to purchase, but great song, hilarious. Uh, it's even better to have the visuals to go with it, but it's got lines like, uh, it's, it's from the perspective of a red shirt wearing you know, Star Trek uh, beam down member and uh, uh, crew member. And uh, it's got lines like, they said the air would be breathable, <laughs> as, in, as if it's not. And then the refrain is like, I look down at my red shirt, uh, and there's just this sense of fatalism in it that, that I love. And it's got kind of a plodding acoustical uh, vibe to it that's just fantastic. Uh, what else? What else? So many things to say about Star Trek. Uh, I, I do think that I don't know if I would use lasers and feelings, even though that's what lasers and feelings is built for. I think it's just a little bit, I feel like it hits two notes, right? There's the lasers and feelings, sides of the dice. I kind of want something with three notes just because of the three branches of the service and the the holy trinity of Spock, Bones, and Kirk, right? The man of science, the man of emotion, and the man of action. And uh, I just, I think that there's there's something inherent in the system that I want like three stats. So I might use tunnel goons or I might use, uh, you know, minimal D6 or something. Beyond that, man, you just don't you don't need any more, do you? Phasers are uh, they either set to stun or they're lethal or they miss. That's you know there's there's not a lot of worry about damage uh, whether it's superficial. Damage is either superficial or it's not superficial. And um, I don't know. It just it's a it's very it's a very simplistic world in some ways. Uh, it's a world that would be very easy to model, and it kind of boggles my mind when people turn them into. And I think pretty much every Star Trek game to date has turned it into some giant book. But if you look at the books, they're mostly setting material and and, uh, and skill lists. People get a little crazy with skill lists. I don't think that's the spirit of Star Trek. If you uh, look at the way characters are portrayed in Star Trek, they don't... Uh, usually everybody has like one special thing, and then they're generally good at, at everything within their shirt color range. So... You know, um, I remember there's a couple series where they had bit part people who were like in the uh, Space Seed, I think it is, the one with Khan, the original one with Khan. Uh, they have a, a, a gal who's a historian or an archaeologist or something like that. So, but that's more of a, uh, an NPC role. Uh, you know, uh, all the main characters were good at, you know, if you've got a blue shirt on, you're good at science. Uh, but but uh, Spock is good at one kind of science, logic, and I don't know why. Uh, yeah, just logic <laughs> and bones is good at medicine. Uh, but the, other than that, they're, they're generally good at science. And, uh, if you're a yellow, you're generally good at command and action and tactics and leadership. And, uh, I don't know what else would go into that. So social skills probably, but you, you might have a specialty. I don't know what you're, I don't know what Kirk's specialty is uh, talking in stuttered, <laughs> talking in a very measured way no i, I uh that's that's overblown he was really bad in the later versions but uh, the later series but actually in the very first season he's uh, i think his acting is quite good in the very first season and he's not even close to the hammiest actor in the first season spock and bones are both way over the top in that one uh, it's almost like as kirk gets more or i should say william shatner as he gets more into his role and gets a little uh, more dramatic if you will the others start to look more uh, dialed back, but they're they're pretty bad too. It's it gets it's hammy at times. 
Mm, oh, I know what Kirk's specialty is. It's at uh, using emotions to uh, blow up robots or kiss, kissing. He's got lethal kiss. That's his special ability. Uh, he could. He can. It, it has to be. Um, I think it has to be something of the opposite sex. He never kissed a guy and made a guy blow up. But I suppose if he did, maybe a guy would blow up. He just hadn't never used his powers against the male spe- male uh, half of the species. <laughs> <laughs> but it even works on female androids, by the way, um, as we have seen in the show. So it's he's got a pretty lethal power there. It's like a special attack. Mm. Right? I mean, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm 100% behind what you're saying, Colin. 100% behind it. And I've rambled on too long, so I'm going to let this one go. Dang it. There's actually one more thing I want to say about Star Trek. <laughs> I ran a game of Inspectrek, is what I called it. It was uh, Star Trek with the Inspector system in Montreal at a gaming convention back in, I don't know, probably 2009, 2010, something like that. And I set it aboard the the Bonaventure, which is a Constellation star, Starship that was featured in the animated series. They had an episode of the animated series about a, a Sargasso Sea-like patch of space uh, where ships would get caught in there and uh, in kind of a stasis field. So you had really, really old ships as well as uh, newer ships that had gotten caught in there and they get kind of lost in time. And the, the, the premise is that the Enterprise you know, rescued this ship, the Bonaventure, out of that zone. And so it comes back with a full crew that have uh, lost like 10 years of their life. And uh, then we, uh, it was going to be the adventures of, of that crew, the Bonaventure. So we did the first, the very first game of it at Montreal. I never did another one. Uh, it, it deserved to have another one probably because it was fun. Uh, I don't know if Inspectors was the right system, but Inspectors has this cool mission generator that I thought it'd be really fun to marry to Star Trek. And it was. <laughs> it was emergent storytelling. It got pretty gonzo. Uh, maybe a little too gonzo for Star Trek and went more into like, um, you know, Blake 7 or, or something. Kind of a, a, kind of a different type of storytelling. But that was a fun exercise. And I've still got that kit somewhere. So I will drag it out and link it in the show notes so you can see what I did with the background story and the mission generator and the character sheet. Hey, Ray, this is your friend, Jim, or Great Big Table over on Twitter. Hey, I was listening to your RPG a day um, discussion about the escape word and that image you were talking about with uh, people being prone to have those strange thoughts, even if they're perfectly not in a uh, destructive mindset. Um, When we were in college, we were trying to place a name to that, that idea of like when you're near a ledge and feeling that urge, or when you're with a toaster and you want to fish something out with a fork. So we were coming up with all these different instances where you would like do something or had this thought of doing something would be terrible if you actually did it, but we could come to the mind unbidden. And um, we collectively started to call them toaster thoughts. It is still something that my friends and I talk about, and I talk about with, with Adrian to this day. Bye. Toaster thoughts. That's perfect. I'm going to start using that from now on. I think there is a term for it, a psychological term for it. I found an article that was related to the urge to jump, and I linked it in the show notes for whatever episode this was that you're referencing, but I've forgotten what what episode that was. So uh, I I don't I'm not in front of my computer, but I think you can search my all my notes and probably find it under jump.
you know, if you'd probably search jump, you'd find it. But uh, toaster thoughts is, is the best. That's better. <laughs> That's better. I'm using that from now on. I try not to have too many toaster thoughts, but sometimes they're not really motivated by any kind of uh, nihilistic um, sense of uh, uh, that you want to, you know, emulate yourself or something. They just come, right? Like, so you're driving down the road and you see, like, uh, I, I've done this where you see a, like a really big rock that's near the road, you know, out here in California, we have some narrow passes and the kind of mountain areas or whatever. And you, you know, you just imagine like, wow, if I lost control here and slammed into that and then, you know, and then my hood would crumple up and I'm like, oh, and the, the cabin would squeeze in on me and my steering wheel would be up on my gut and I'd be, and the car horn would come on and I'd be laying there with like, you know, uh, maybe the car's on fire and like, I'm trying to yell but i can't breathe i mean you, your brain goes through this whole scenario right while you're and the next thing you know you just you're, you, you've passed that spot on the road and the sun's shining and you're driving along and you're kind of laughing at yourself because you've had this little fantasy about uh what it would be like <laughs> what it would be like to die in that spot and i think that's just us uh you know reminding ourselves that we're mortal or something so or maybe it's just me maybe i'm really weird Hi, right. Just been listening to your episode, your RPG and A episode, Vast, where you talked about John Blanche's artwork. And I've got to say, it really brought a smile to my face. Although I'm no longer quite the sort of big war game Warhammer fan I once was, I used to really love John Blanche's artwork in books. And like you say, those huge, vast sort of panoramas of battlefields that he covered and those quirky sort of weird sci-fi uh, figure studies that he used to do always captured my imagination no matter how bizarre and weird they were so just wanted to call and say enjoy the episode and thanks for bringing that up it brought up some very fond memories for me enjoying the podcast dude keep up the good work take care and i'll catch you soon i don't have much to add to that i agree though i I was never much of a warhammer guy there's a few of the games that i played but I man, the art some of the early art is so good right i mean the art overall is pretty good but it's become self-referencing in a way in these later years. I just think some of that early art was so amazing and crazy and evocative. I'm pretty sure that a lot of uh, John Blanche's um, character sketches are, you know, drove whole concepts within the game. And just as a, a side note, I was reading Philip Jewlett's Lone Sloan comic the other day. Uh, that's a French artist and... Um, I don't know if I said his name. It's probably Droulet or something like that. But Lone Sloan is L-O-N-E, as in Lone Wolf, right? And then Sloan, S-L-O-A-N. I think it's S-L-O-A-N. Uh, and it's uh, it's really a comic that's all about the drawings, and they're amazing. But at any rate, uh, he's, he's this kind of space mercenary, and uh, it, it reminds me of uh, Twilight 2000, uh, Judge Dredd, you know, that kind of stuff. And in the in the very first issue or the very first uh, mission that he goes on to planet delirious i think it is it's a kind of a pleasure planet and he's going to rip off this uh, emperor of the planet of this huge amount of gold and there's a troublesome faction called the red uh, red priest or something there and i was thinking man this is um like there's so much of Warhammer that came out of this comic. There was even a house Escher which i believe was one of the houses in uh, Necromunda and uh, it, it seemed to fit, and I was like, "Wow, I can see where they got a lot of their influences." So, if you like, if you like Jean Blanche, and you like that kind of vast scale art with like all kinds of crazy little doodads going on in it, you should pick up uh, Philip Droulet 
and uh, Lone Sloan, the delirious one especially. I, you know, the story isn't super deep. You don't care about the characters all that much, but the drawings are amazing. And uh, in the end, I thought the story was going nowhere, but in the end, by the time I read the whole thing, I thought, you know what? Actually, quite a bit happened in there, and it felt very much like a role-playing game session. So I, I recommend it. I might, uh, in the show notes, I'll, I'll try to flash up one of the cool uh, comic page spreads because they're just like they're ridiculous they're so good and his panel layouts are uh who's the artist that did the there's a new york artist that did a really famous painting of the brooklyn bridge that kind of looks like the brooklyn bridge as if it were a stained glass thing why can't i think of that guy's name uh i guess i'll have to put him in the show notes too but it it, was going to say was his philip julie's panel layouts are almost like stained glass and they're symmetrical in a kaleidoscopic sort of way, you know, left to right. And, um, but just really, really intricate and odd the way he's laid out. They, they remind you of the front of a jukebox or, uh, you know, they're very Baroque in that way. And it's it's a super cool comic, uh, to look at something you could just kind of turn off your mind and sink into a little bit. Hey Ray, I just want to leave you a message as Jason. Um, no need to worry about trying to incorporate into your cast. Just want to let you know that I appreciate your series. Enjoy listening to them. And it, when Dinky Dungeons comes out, not all of us are on Facebook or whatever. When Dinky Dungeons comes back out, if they do republish it, please let us know through your cast. I would be very interested in picking that up. As it is, I picked up a copy of Perilous Encounters from Noble Knight. So I'm enjoying looking at that. And we'll talk to you later on. Again, keep up the great work. Thank you. Bye. I will do that. I will definitely let you know when Dinky Dungeons comes out. And uh, it's so cool to hear that you picked up Perilous Encounters just based on me pimping it here on the show. You're not the only one. You're not even the only Jason that did it. Jason Hobbs did it, uh, also picked up Perilous Encounters. And I'm kind of wondering how many other people went and got copies of that thing. I actually went to Noble Knight the other day to see if I could get a copy because I couldn't find my old one. And, uh, and they were all sold out. And I thought, did I do that? <laughs> it's a little scary to think that I've got people running around buying things based on what I say. I am a fan of a lot of things. So you kind of have to take what I say with a grain of salt. Although I don't, I never will tell you that something's good if I don't think it's good. Right. I, um, I just, but I try to stick more to the positive and what I say about things. And, uh, there's just so much good stuff out there to pimp and it's hard to not want it all. Right. Hey, Ray, it's John from Red Dice Diaries here. Just been listening to your uh, episode about Obscure Games. Really enjoyed that and getting a a bit of a glimpse into your sort of habits as you were growing up. And it was nice to hear someone talking about their their friendly local gaming store. I mean, it's something that I suppose I'm as guilty as anyone of, like with the internet coming in and making games so easy to get, it's pretty much sort of disappeared or disappearing now. So it was nice to hear about that and, you know, thanks to that episode, I'm going to redouble my efforts to visit my local gaming store more often. Also, thank you very much for the kind words about my own obscure episode that I filmed with my wife, Hannah. Yeah, I know Burning Wheel is not really a massively obscure game, but like I say, it's often one I've heard people mention and say, oh yeah, it sounds cool, but I'm never ever going to play it. Which I think is a shame, really, because it's a really interesting game. Yeah, okay, it's a bit involved mechanically, but there's loads of good stuff in there. And even though I'm not normally a big mechanics person, 
reading the book just kept me interested and made me want to keep reading and eventually play it. And hopefully a friend of mine's going to run a game of that soon. Or I might even give it a go myself, although I'm not sure I'd be confident enough to run it based on the, the quick flick through of the book I've done at the moment. But thanks again for your kind words about my podcast and the obscure episode. Uh, both me and Hannah really appreciate it. Just one small correction. The the game that we talked about, this strange fourth wall breaking game, wasn't actually one we found in a bargain bin. It was one that a friend of mine entirely made up that I didn't actually play in, but the sort of fictional background of this game was that it had been picked up in a bargain bin. But like I say, even though I didn't actually play in that game, I know Hannah had a really good time with it, as did a number of my other friends. I know that my friend John, who ran it, who sadly doesn't really roleplay all that much now, really sort of pulled out the stops and was really creative with that. So, yeah, that's why we picked it for Obscure, because you don't really get much Obscure than, like, someone's own homebrew game that they've just sort of whittled out of nothing whole cloth. So, thanks again, dude. Really enjoying the episodes. Keep up the good work, and I will catch you soon. Take care. The The levels to that kind of boggle my mind. So, it was a game a guy made up about a guy who made up a game. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know where to untangle all of that. That's so obscure. It's just super cool. And yeah, Burning Wheel, that's a book I've kept on my shelf for years. I have never played it. I need to. Um, it's a little off-putting. There's something about the text that kind of holds itself apart from you that is both lyrical and cool on one hand. Like the Life Path stuff is amazing. Uh, but on the other hand, it's kind of like saying... Uh, uh, you know, you, 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 this may be too much game for you, or you may not get this, but, uh, I, I don't know. There's something about it that's kind of elitist or something. I, I don't, I don't love the voice of it. And maybe that's just me. I especially, the first edition that I had, had the little devil heads in the side. And I can't remember if the, the one that I have now, I have the, the kind of gold plated, uh, you know, hardback, <laughs> uh, now I don't know if it still has those, but it had the little, like, so the author wrote the book and then uh, Luke Crane wrote the book and then he overwrote himself with little side notes telling you how to read his text. And it was just like, what? So pretentious, uh, <laughs> in my opinion, right. It was just, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I think a lot of people just don't, you know, when they pick up the book, it's hard to access it, right? It's hard to figure out what I'm supposed to do with this thing. And it's kind of, kind of says like, you have to like read all of it before you play it. And you have to sort of understand it before you, there's no, there's not much spirit of experimentation in that thing. Uh, You have to really buy in and you have to buy into something you really don't understand when you buy in. Uh, And then supposedly it pays off. And I know it probably does because, you know, people I respect, like Judd Carlman, who does the Daydreaming About Dragons podcast, really loves Burning Wheel. So I'm sure I'm being too hard on it. I'm sure it's a good game and it's one that I need to give a go. It's the most Tolkien-ish game I've ever read. You know, it really captures the spirit of the Lord of the Rings, I think, in a way that I've not seen any other game do. Now, having said that, I have not read The One Ring. Um, and I'm discounting my own there and back again. So, <laughs> but I think it captures uh, the spirit of the Lord of the Rings, whereas my there and back again captures, I, I hope, the spirit of the 1937 The Hobbit, the sort of unrevised version of The Hobbit, which is a little bit more magical and fairy tale like and uh, um, not as tied to the Middle Earth lore that comes later. 
nothing else to say about that. I think, uh, I just think it's a, it is a wonderful burning wheels, a wonderful choice. I think for an obscure game, it really is. It really is an obscure game. That's what made me laugh about it was that I, my first reaction was that it wasn't obscure. And then I realized it's only not obscure from my super tight corner of the hobby, meaning that I'm so far down the line on obscure games that Burning Wheel seems like something everybody knows about, when in in fact it's not something everybody knows about, and it's something very few gamers have played. Uh, And I I would say probably you'd be lucky if one out of a hundred people who play role-playing games have played Burning Wheel, and it might even be closer to one in a thousand, and uh, that's probably a shame. It's it's a certainly a labor of love. It's one of those games where you pick it up and you go, somebody really, really, really cared about this game. And that alone makes me respect it. Hey, Ray. It's Hilarin from Updates from the Middle of Nowhere. And I just wanted to let you know, I loved your Week 2 RPG A Day podcast. Of course, I noticed what your favorite snack is. But see, I can be a grown-up and... Not giggle out loud, only because I was sitting at my desk at work. (laughs) Anyway, I love it when you ramble. It's so funny you're apologizing for rambling. Man, don't do that. I love hearing your thoughts, and sometimes when you ramble is when you can dig a little deeper and figure out something that's buried in there, you know? I don't know, maybe you're the kind of person who's really introspective in the first place, so it doesn't work that way for you. But I just wanted to say that I'm really enjoying you doing that, and I'm glad that you joined in. Well, to be honest, ding-dongs aren't my favorite snack. My favorite snack is probably, if I can get it, homemade cherry pie. But, <laughs> but you know, if I'm going to stop at a convenience store, I don't know. Anything's fair game in there. There's hardly any bits of candy that I don't like. Unfortunately, I love food. Uh, and I thank you so much for the kind words, and I'm glad that you don't mind when I ramble, because... Uh, well, you're going to like this episode because it's pretty much stream of consciousness. <laughs> pretty much. You're just getting whatever's coming out of my head with, with the almost, oh, let's face it, zero filter. It's got zero filter. It's just coming straight from my brain out through my lips and into the microphone. I'm not doing any double takes or anything like that. Uh, and it's going to be long. So sit back and enjoy. Hey Ray, it's John here from Red Dice Diaries. Just been listening to your episode about the Minies, your idea for an award system, you know, where people just create an award and give it someone they think has created something or done something great for the hobby. I think that's a really cool idea because, as you say, because it takes a little bit of effort, people just aren't going to do it willy-nilly, but the person who receives it will know that someone's genuinely put some thought in it rather than it just being like a random panel of people and all the associated tomfoolery that goes along with that. So just wanted to call in and say I thought it was a great idea. Anyway, enjoying the episodes, dude. Take care and I'll catch you soon. Hey, Ray, it's Liren again. Oh my gosh, I love your award idea. I cannot wait until you get that fleshed out because that is really exciting. I love the idea of having it just be an individual thing and not like some committee or whatever. That's really great. So anyway, um, I can't wait to see what you get set up. I'm hoping to get back to the Miney sometime this fall and award the first couple. I've got the website all set up. I need to go over it one more time to make sure that it's how I want it. Uh, Clean up the rules just a little bit more. I want to 
get them as, as succinct as possible so that I don't get in people's way. I want to make it easy to do, but also uh, clear and clean. My biggest, you know, this is supposed to be the best of both worlds in the sense that um, nobody needs my permission to recognize another person for their accomplishments uh, or for their um, contributions to the hobby that we should all be doing that all the time. That's just called support and encouragement and, uh, you know, cheering people on. But my hope is to make something that's a little bit more official and yet the politics don't get involved in either the award itself or the process of giving the award. So it's something between you just saying great job to someone and uh, a committee awarding that someone uh, an award that has baggage. Uh, and I hope I hope it takes off. We'll see. If it doesn't, it doesn't. That's fine. I just thought it was a neat idea. Hi, Ray. It's Liren. You asked about taste and smell palettes. I guess for me, a taste palette might be something that I'm going to do every time I play the game. So it would be more associative to memories of playing the game than it would be to the actual scenario of the game. Unless there was some really strong element within it that was taste-based. And smell-wise, I love your candle idea. That is a wonderful idea. I mean, I can get into some candles. <laughs> so again, I can totally see like if you were, for example, if I was doing like a piratey game, I might think about if I'm on a tropical island, we were talking about playing a game that was a pirate town on a tropical island, and I could totally see tropical smell candles adding to that experience. But really, it'd be about doing the same thing every time. Hi, Ray. It's Laren. You were talking about building games with images, and that is really completely what the Everway playtest that I did at Dexcon was, and I loved it. I loved hearing what people came up with based on the images that they uh, selected. I I don't know, you know, the creativity of players sometimes just blows my mind. Like, I'll look at an image and get one mood or flavor from it, and it's almost like if you went around the table, you'd get something different from every single person, unless it's just like a, you know, big guy holding a sword. But even then... It's, you know, maybe two people will have the same response. I don't know. I love stuff like that. So I really enjoy art cards a lot. Hey, Laren. There's a couple of great things you hit on there. Uh, first of all, let me say that when I was talking about palettes, I was thinking of them as GM prep, as a very personal sort of thing. I find that if I really want to make a good original adventure, I have to first make it personal. I have to find some place within myself that uh, that resonates to to an idea, and then I can more fully visualize that for myself and bring it uh, bring to it sensory detail and emotive content and all that. But I really like what you and Jeff did with trying to share a palette with the players. That's a really neat idea. I, I, as I understand it, it was, uh, it didn't work out so well, partly, well, for various reasons, but I think it's a really neat idea to make it collaborative, uh, as well, or instead of making it a personal kind of palette. Um, the other thing you mentioned, well, one of the other things you mentioned was doing the same thing every time. And I, I see that differently, but it's also a kind of palette, right? So this idea of maybe 
like burning certain scents, candles, while while you're playing. And uh, I, for me, they, this falls under the category of game rituals. So there are things that you do on game night uh, that make you feel comfortable in the zone and that uh, keep people grounded. I, right now we are playing, the, the Brews, Bones, and Blades crew are playing at Ale Smith, which is a brewery. We play every Monday night, and there's an upstairs where hardly anybody goes. Monday night is pretty, pretty empty anyway. And there's a bathroom right next to it, which is awesome. <laughs> a really nice, super nice bathroom. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have a nice little table up there, uh, kind of out in the open, but also not on display, if you will. And uh, there's a group that actually has started playing about three or four tables away from us, and the the atmosphere designs such a way that you can't even really hear each other. Well, I'm I'm getting way off track here, but we uh, we always order our food first, usually from the food trucks, and they bring it up. Um, we often start with a kind of a recap of our social contract and maybe some questions. Uh, you know, we have a beer in hand, we get rolling, and then about the time the first beer is done is a good time for a break, and we all take a break and, and uh, you know, take a little walk downstairs to get to get another glass of beer or get some water and uh, go to the bathroom and whatnot. And it's just kind of like these these little rituals, like these patterns that develop are important. And it strikes me that you could help develop these patterns with some of the things you do. And I've talked about this before. I think um, I certainly have in person, if not on the podcast, talked about phrases that you use to get into the game, uh, phrases that you use to kind of wrap up a game, uh, you know, just different ways of instilling rituals into uh, into your into your play. There was a speaker that I used to hear quite a bit, and he would always say at the beginning of his talk that his favorite movie was Forrest Gump, and one of the things he liked about Forrest Gump was when, when Forrest was done talking about something, he would say, and that's all I have to say about that. And uh, so he said, when you hear me say that, you'll know I'm done. And so uh, he would start every speech with that and end every speech with, and that's all I have to say about that. And it was very clever in a way. I got tired of it, but at the same time, I also you know would always chuckle every time he finished because I think, okay, that's, you know, it's a great way to end it. Uh, so so those cues are, are very helpful. It's a kind of structure that doesn't impede your creativity in play, but uh, makes everybody a little more grounded and comfortable in the zone. Finally, uh, you were talking about Everway. Now, I can't believe I missed talking about Everway when I was talking about working from images. I believe I talked about Swords Without Masters. If I didn't, I should have. Uh, somebody can nudge me if uh, they want to hear more about that game. But Everway is was a really cool game. Um, I used to have a copy of it. It was given to me by a friend. I think I still have it somewhere. Uh, I haven't looked at it in quite a while, though. And uh, the funny story about this is, so my friend lived in Montreal. Well, still does live in Montreal. And uh, he gave me the game, and I'm flying home with it. And I didn't have room for it in my bag. And uh, so I had it on my in, like, a carry-on sack. Um, I had my, like, regular backpack with stuff in it. It didn't really fit in there, so I'd put it in, like, a, you know, a shopping bag almost, well, I fall asleep on the plane on the second flight, getting to San Diego, and uh, um, I kind of wake up at the last second right when we touch down, and I'm kind of disoriented, and because uh, it was an overnight flight, I think, and uh, well, so I get up to get my stuff out of the, the, the bin, and you can see where this is going, I spill it. Now, every way, I drop the bag, and the, the box 
pops open and the cards go everywhere. Everyway has dozens and dozens of cards, right? And they're and they're to be frank a little kooky, right? They're they're kind of tarot-like. And uh, if, if you don't know what you're looking at, you'd be like, what's this person into? What is that thing? Um, <laughs> and so, and maybe that's my Midwestern like fear of being different uh, <laughs> coming out. But uh, so this thing pops and it f- spills all over the airplane aisle. And I'm hurriedly trying to like pick this thing up. And all the whole time, I feel like super self-conscious about the fact that I've got all these basically tarot cards thrown everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, not 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 a great moment for me. Uh, not not a big deal looking at it in retrospective, but it was kind of like really awkward at the time, uh, and I felt bad about spilling my the game my friend gave me. I was uh, you know hoping it didn't take any damage, which luckily it did not. Um, Might have gotten a few airplane peanuts in the box. You never know. But yeah, that was a very cool game. Uh, probably ahead of its time. Um, probably also just a little too far out on the edge for people to really rock and like um, to engage with over a long haul or on a broad spectrum you know it's, it's certainly not one that most people know about and or have or have even ever seen ever way but uh, it was a really neat idea and there's been a lot of games that have tried to make something out of tarot cards and in my opinion have mostly failed uh, I, I read tarot cards I taught myself how to read them a while back and uh, it's it's an interesting thing because, and again, I may have talked, I, I lose track. Of, there's 99 episodes here. I can't remember what I've talked about and what I haven't. So I hope not, I'm not doing the old man ramble of repeating stories. But I did a couple readings for friends who wanted, you know, who was like, when they found out I was reading tarot cards, they got all excited. And, you know, everybody likes to have their cards read, right? That's kind of why I did it. I thought it'd be fun. Mostly I thought it'd be fun psychologically to do for myself. Uh, and I find that I don't really do it for myself much. It's a little too easy or um, there's not much mystery. It's it's a little bit like role-playing alone. <laughs> you you kind of want to have another person there to interact with. There's a social component to it. So I read these cards for my friends, and I did like three in a row. Um, and, you know, each one was maybe a half hour or 45 minutes, something like that. And, oh, and you know, it's pretty easy for me. I'm a I'm artist by nature, kind of surrealistic thinker in general, a metaphorical thinker. So, you know, the cards really kind of speak to me in the sense that I can always find things in them that surprise me and surprise the person uh, and give them, you know, some interesting things to think about. Well, at the end of that, I was so drained, uh, like emotionally, psychologically, that I felt kind of sick. And I felt like then I started worrying about whether these people would take things too seriously and take my advice in a way that you know, they actually acted on that might mess up their lives or their relationships or something. And so I haven't ever done it again because it was just a little too, a little too real, a little too deep, a little too, um, like taxing on me spiritually. So that's an, I, you know, I don't know if that would happen with Everway as a game, whether you would get maybe a little too deep. I mean, there is such a thing, right? Of, uh, getting into i mean it's good to get out of your comfort zone but sometimes it's also it, there's there's uh you have to be very careful in the aftermath it's like after a massage you're supposed to drink lots of water right i, I think after a game like that you'd really want to be careful where your emotional and psychological state is at and to take care of yourself and that's that's always kind of a dangerous thing to play with so i don't, I don't know how i got to this point but i think that's all interesting thoughts to 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 think 
Hey, Ray, I just finished the podcast with the question that you asked me, and I got the call in from your grand about your grandmother. That is fantastic. I love grandma stories. <laughs> I got one for you. All right. So my grandma goes to the doctor, and the doctor it sounds like a joke. I guess it kind of is. So my grandma goes to the doctor, my mom, and the doctor says, Now, okay, you got a picture. She's got a really thick Hungarian accent. She's like two foot three. <laughs> you know, she looks Hungarian, just really funny. And the doctor says, do you get dizzy? And she says, only when I drink. <laughs> I don't know. It still, it still makes me laugh. And hearing her say Dracula, I, I would make her say, I wouldn't make her, I would ask her to say Dracula for everybody that came over for the first time. I'm like, my mom, say Dracula. And she'd act like she was kind of shy about it, but then she would say Dracula and it was just the best. All right. That's it. Thank you so much for your call on creativity and for your story about your grandma. I love grandmother stories too. I had an amazing grandmother on my father's side and great grandmother on my father's side. Um, my grandmother on my mother's side was great too, but she was a, a little more um, aloof, <laughs> reserved. My uh, grandma Mabel, that was her name. I have two stories about her that I'm going to tell, and uh, they're both kind of funny. So hopefully, even though they aren't really role-playing game related, you'll enjoy them. The first one is the one that I called into the Happy Whisk. And I don't know if I've told either of these stories on the air before, but if I have, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm getting close to 100 episodes now. My memory isn't so good about what I've said and what I haven't said. But the first one is that my uh, grandmother was learning how to drive. And she learned how to drive. This was, you know, back in the 50s. And she learned how to drive after her uh, oldest son learned how to drive. Her, she had three boys. Uh, I think the first two had learned how to drive at this point. And so she decided she wanted to know how to drive. And they had a big old heavy 1950s, you know, four-door sedan of some kind. I don't know if it was a, a 57 Chevy or what, but you can sort of imagine a big old uh, bubbly 50s automobile out on country roads in rural Indiana. And uh, my uh, my uncle, my uh, the middle son, was driving her around, and she was uh, not driving her around, was uh, riding, you know, and trying to teach her how to drive. And when my, my grandmother was driving, she comes up to an intersection, and uh, to turn right, there's no stop, and she ends up in the ditch, <laughs> turns too soon and ends up in the ditch. And my uncle helps her get out of the ditch. He, you know, switches places with her and backs it out of the ditch. And they get going again. And they're a little further down the road and they're talking about it. And she says, you know, I think I'd have made that turn if I'd have been going a little faster. <laughs> and I just, what I love about that is that my grandmother's, the lesson that she took away from that was not to be more careful, but to actually um, be more aggressive, to be more um, daring, I guess. <laughs> and that's just the way she thought. The other story I wanted to tell was she was quite old at this point, in her 90s, and uh, she lived to be 98, I think. I think it was 98. Uh, she was in her 90s, and this wasn't that long ago. And my mother was taking uh, grandma to the hospital. Um, they were sitting in the emergency room and it wasn't, an, uh, I forget what she was in there for, but it was uh, something not terrible. And they're waiting in the emergency room and uh, it's very crowded. So they've been there a while and in comes a prisoner with a sheriff in tow. And the prisoner is manacled and he has on, you know, a full orange uniform, the kind of jumpsuit that they wear in American prisons, or at least in some American prisons. 
and uh, they take a seat in the waiting room and everybody's kind of uncomfortable and you know being kind of quiet or just ignoring the situation in, as is proper uh, and <laughs> my grandmother says that's some outfit <laughs> and everybody gets really quiet because they're all embarrassed you know and the the prisoner just kind of looks at her and, uh, and then a little while goes by and my and my grandmother then pipes up again and she goes not everybody gets to wear an outfit like that and then it gets quiet again and uh, nobody says anything and the prisoner but the prisoner kind of chuckles i guess at that point well uh a little later after the appointment my mom uh, takes grandma out to the car and she goes mabel didn't you know that that was a that that was a, a prisoner you know she goes yeah i knew she goes but not uh she was you know i bet they get tired of people not talking to them and uh <laughs> she goes not treating them like a normal person and i thought that's hilarious you know i mean it it is kind of funny that she just her she did it not to make fun of the prisoner but she did it kind of out of care for that person to try to try to treat him like a normal person maybe maybe your humor was a little off base but <laughs> but that's my grandma she was an amazing person she never worried about offending anyone she would just speak up she never really was trying to offend anyone so she never thought about it um but she would sometimes say things that are that weren't so kind <laughs> but in, in a very blunt way but you could never take it the wrong way because you could tell that she didn't uh that she was just trying to be friendly just trying to be funny and she was funny and she was an amazing grandmother she would do all kinds of things with us i think i did mention this before you know she taught me all these crafts when i was a kid um we do like the little, there was a little decorative thing called paper curling where you'd make little pictures out of curled paper, strips of paper. She would make homemade Play-Doh and we would play with that. Uh, we would uh, do like decoupage and macrame and uh, later on like needlepoint and lash hook and just about anything that was craft oriented that, that, uh, you know, you could do with a kid, she would do with us and got a lot of my artistic mind from her and just the, the, the love of, spending my free time creating things instead of just consuming things so an amazing person and i think i hope we all have people in our lives like that i know not everybody does and so i feel extremely extremely lucky to have had so many great influences in my life and uh maybe spend a little time thinking about yours if you've got one and uh, if you don't you know it doesn't have to be family um go find somebody go, go latch on to somebody who's creative and appreciate them and do things with them. I think it, you'll be rewarded for it. Up next is Cody M. And I wanted to slip in a quick language warning here. So if you've got kids in the car or you're listening at work, you might want to put your headphones on or, or turn it down just a little. Cody uh, uh, gets a little salty. <laughs> hey, Ray, it's Cody. I um, just wanted to call in on uh, your most recent episode and... Um, I guess what, you know, it, it resonated with me pretty well. I'm, um, currently running a, a fifth edition game for a group of, I don't know, like quote traditional, um, 5e players. So, you know, they're all into writing up backstories and, and finding out their characters. And that I found that that doesn't really mesh well with my style of GMing. Um, I'd much rather have that kind of stuff emerge from the fiction, um, and they all wanted me to like read their backgrounds before we started the game. And, um, it's probably going to turn into a two part call here, but, um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to say, um, 
thanks for the episode. I think I might send it to the players and have them listen to it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll call back with part two. And, yeah, I guess I felt like a bit of a dick when I told them that I wasn't going to read their backstories um, and that, you know, if they wanted that to be relevant, that it would need to come up in the in play uh, in the fiction, um, which is a great phrase, by the way. I like um, when you say that. <laughs> it's uh, it always kind of, you know, hits home with me. So um, where was I? Uh yeah, so I, I have a pretty limited, I just told them, you know, I have a limited amount of time that I can actually sit down and read stuff in my day-to-day life right now, and I wasn't going to spend it reading their shitty fan fiction, so <laughs> um, that may sound cold or callous, but it is the truth, so um, anyway, man, keep up the good work, and I'll uh, I'll catch you later. You're funny, Cody. You are both a crotchety old man and an edgy youth. (laughs) I think you always were and probably always will be those things in combination, and I love it. Uh, So it it cracks me up, you know, the way you're talking about your players, and I I totally get it. I know it's kind of tongue-in-cheek and you're being funny, Uh, but I get it. I mean, I don't want to read their backstories either, but more to the point, even reading their backstories, even if I really like them, it's hard to internalize them in a way that makes them real to the game, especially when not everybody at the table shares it. So let's think about it this way. One player writes a backstory. You've got maybe three other players and a GM or more at the table. Unless all of them read it and all of them internalize it, it's not real. And that's why I you know, firmly believe that nothing is real until it enters the story, until it gets into the fiction. And by real, of course, I mean, you know, part of the collaborative environment, part of the collaborative backstory or ongoing story of the characters, part of the campaign. It's just not a part of it. It, It's this artifact, this weird little artifact that sits outside the game that is, you know, that wants to be inside but also wants to be separate it's like a weird passive aggressive kid at a dance you know he he's on the edge and he wants to go dance but he wants somebody to come out and ask him to dance uh and that may or may not happen and (laughs) you know i just it's it's a weird thing and people do it a lot and i and that's great. I think it's perfectly good for you to write as a person to write a backstory for your character. That's really not a problem. The problem is when you want everybody to internalize it without having played it out in front of them. And, you know, actions speak louder than words. And so in character, in character actions speak louder than your um you know, your emails, I guess, your, your, uh, and character emails. And I would encourage anybody to, to use that backstory if you're going to write one and highlight parts of it, you know, on any given night, highlight one piece of it or two pieces of it and say to yourself, I'm looking for an opportunity to get these pieces into the fiction and, uh, you know, be ready, be ready to do that. JJ at our game, uh, last Monday night, came up with kind of a thematic question for his character at first level. And it was, we had done a zero level uh, or zero, yeah, zero level character thing where we were trying to, uh, like before we picked classes, we were just our, our races and we had, uh, you know, I think I've talked about this before, but we'd been taking slaves. And so it was, we kind of worked through our initial 
exploration of characters without any special abilities or classes. So when we hit first level, JJ said he wanted to have kind of a thematic question for his character at each level, which is a really cool idea. And his first question was, can can lightning strike twice or can fortune strike twice? Meaning the three of us as characters worked really well together in the zero level funnel and that there was kind of a magic there, but he suspects now that you know, things are different and there's been five years in between um, our zero level adventure and our first level adventure that uh, he doesn't know, you know, if we're going to get along again or if it's ever, everything's just changed too much. And so he, and several times during the game, he took this question and tried to test it, right? Um, he's a bard. He's a non-musical bard, actually, which is funny. Uh, he's uh, He's got drums and bells, but he doesn't really... Uh, he will sometimes perform, but it's it's more like he's a storyteller, a historian, a scald, if you will. And uh, he tried to, um, you know, encourage both uh, Bill's character and mine to to do cool things to kind of get the synergy going, to to build synergy between the characters in an attempt to a see if lightning would strike twice or force lightning to strike twice in the same place and it it was neat i could see it uh but it wasn't anything it didn't get in the way of the fiction it was it was subtly done and i thought afterwards i thought yep that's that's him testing that question and that's how your backstory should be it shouldn't be something you force on characters it should be something you use as fuel to add dimension to your character when the opportunity presents itself Hi, Alfred here. Just listening to your recent uh, podcast, 83, I think it was. It was a really good episode. Um, I think what you were saying about creating characters on the fly, as it were, during gameplay can be a great way to do it. Um, I think the different game systems suit different styles better. And as you said quite rightly, different GMs suit different styles. Um, I'm more of a planner when it comes to character creation but I'm always happy to try and adapt if the GM wants to do a different way. Um, I have enjoyed in the past creating characters as we've gone through the campaign and we've even helped to build the campaign and the world around it. So great idea. I think players should adapt where they can to help the GM. I think it makes characters better players and it probably makes them better GMs for other systems. Cheers. Great response, Darren. Good to hear from you. I you you brought up a lot of things there. Uh, I think sometimes that role playing games are more of an art than a science, and by that, usually that phrase what that means to me that there's so many moving parts that it's pretty hard to be analytical about it. You kind of are better off just going with intuition, but. Um, you know, as far as making all those parts work together and following your instincts. And I totally get that some people's instincts are to be planners in regards to their characters. And I think in my response to Cody, I brought up some of this, but I, I don't think it's wrong to plan. I think it can be a very good thing to kind of explore the system that way. I think that's how players explore system a lot of time is by playing around with different ways of building characters. And in fact, I found that uh, because I've GM'd most of my life that I've enjoyed being a player for the last, I don't know, eight or nine months in our group because we've got four people who all can GM or want to GM. And uh, so I've been trying to be a better player of characters. And I'm I'm finding that that muscle for me uh, is taking some work that 
uh, it's good for me to, to do some more thinking about characters. So I started a page in my journal where I just list character concepts, <laughs> you know, some neat ideas for characters. And I, I think this is what good players do a lot already, just naturally. They're constantly planning out the next character or an idea for a character. I know my son, my oldest son, is like this. He'll sometimes come down and tell me, like, hey, I got this cool idea for a character, and then he'll, like, sketch out in a, in a sentence or two a, a really neat idea for a character. And I'm, I'm always kind of amazed. And his are often kind of mechanically driven right like he's uh, mine are more story driven when i come up with an idea for a character i don't really care what class or race it is at first unless that plays into to the nature of the story of the character but i want to you know i want to i do want a one or two sentence like elevator pitch that explains the character to me and what it's all about i asked this question on social media a couple weeks ago about uh you know people's neat ideas like hooks for characters and uh one of them that was really interesting i think it was guillaume genti who sent this one in he talked about one of his characters who was this called the son of the rats i I forget what his actual character name was but he was sent by the uh the rat by rats by the race of rats to the human world to learn to kind of like uh be their researcher of human ways and he uh had a couple abilities one was like once per day he could call on a favor from the rats right uh and but he also was slightly awkward because i uh now i'm gonna forget i think maybe he was a rat that got polymorphed into a human right uh i think that's right and but you know so he's still one of the rats but he's nominally a human and he has to kind of be a human and he's trying to learn humans so it's a little bit like data from next generation right but not so robotic uh yeah that, that, it was a cool idea and so I'm, I'm looking for these neat ideas uh there was uh one of the things i really like about my uh, sorcerers and cell swords design is just by happy you know circumstance of the way it's built you can kind of make any fantasy character you want there's no restrictions on you know you can make up races you can make up classes essentially on the fly and one of my uh, one of my keywords there that people can use is construct so you can play a construct and there was a guy in uh, paul backlog back elda i think is his last name um I see him at Gary Con and, uh, uh, you know, this was at Gen Con at Games on Demand. I was running a game. And he played a stone golem named Kor, and Kor had a big recess in his chest, and um, there were different things. He would put things in his chest, or he would pull things out of his chest, and it was kind of a... Mostly he would put things in there, and he could analyze them or contain them, you know, in this space in his chest. <laughs> and, it, and it became all about him uh, sort of consuming things or, like, uh, experiencing things, almost like a kid with an oral fixation, right? Uh, he would uh, stick those things into his into his chest recess, and it was, a, it was an interesting idea. Certainly for one session, it was a great idea. Uh, I don't know how long he could have played that character. I would like to have seen where he took it from there. But, you know, character concepts are cool, and a uh, little lonely fun where you set and dream out different characters can be a super healthy thing and can make you a great player and a good contributor at the table. It also means, Darren, and I'm sure you are this way exactly, that you know the rules for your character, right? And uh, it does kind of bug me sometimes when somebody builds a character 
or just wants to play, you know, wants to play a wizard, for instance. They want to play a wizard, and so, uh, you know, you help them build a wizard character, and then they come to the table, and, you know, time after time after time, they don't know the spells that they use all the time, or don't know how, even worse, maybe don't even know the mechanics of casting a spell. And I, I, I probably have been guilty of this myself at some point, you know, not learning the rules for the character because I'm too concentrated on telling the story of my character um, that I don't know the rules. But I, I really appreciate it. I sort of expect it that my players know the basic rules of their character, right? How to, how to run their character. Because I don't have time as the GM to both do all the NPCs and the monsters and, you know, try to think about what characters are saying and how to set them up for highlights and um, move the spotlight around and keep the pacing up and all that and help them play their character. <laughs> it's too much. It's too much. Maybe that's why I like Rules Light System. Uh, well, it's one of the reasons I do like Rules Light Systems because as a GM, I'm doing so many other things that I it's very helpful to not have to engage too much with mechanics. But, uh, uh, yeah. Wow, um, that was really rambly, but there's just a lot there, and I think there is kind of when I get, to get back to my original point about being more of an art than a science. There are uh, components to the to the RPG universe, right? Some are mechanical and some are fictional, and you interact with them differently. And I think it's perfectly fine to interact with mechanical components away from the table to really you know run through scenarios and learn the game and do character builds. Um, and then uh, the fictional aspects really, for me, belong at the table in collaboration most of the time. You can it's hard to play those away from the table. You can build little bits of fiction that you're going to use at the table, but until you use them, they're um, just notions, right, of things that might happen. They're almost like uh, all the different parallel universes. And, you know, when you get to the table, you find out which one you're in. (laughs) Hey, Ray, it's Liren. I have to tell you, when you were talking about playing to find out who your character is and not doing things away from the table and all of that. I could have just hit that applause button over and over and over. I think that sounds wonderful. And when I was at the con, I didn't get handed any pre-gen characters. I actually think that would have been an interesting experience. I did play a game of monster hearts where you have to pick a playbook that has some things predefined, but you still get to tell your own backstory and everything, so maybe that's what you mean? I'm not sure. That's as close as I got to pre-gen. Hey, Liren, you bring up a great point about pre-gen characters. There is a, an array of them. There are different ways to do pre-gens. And in my opinion, there's a right way and a wrong way to do them. I don't I don't usually like to be prescriptive like that, but I, I really do believe this is true. There are pre-gen characters that you're handed where everything is already decided. Not just the mechanical bits, you know, where all your gear is already chosen and, and all your uh, attributes are set and all your spells are listed, but also where they put a little bit of backstory on the character sheet. And sometimes that backstory is even especially relevant to the scenario the GM has already got in mind. And when I get that much on a pre-generated character, I feel like I'm being remote piloted. Like I'm in a car and I'm nominally driving, but the GPS really has control of the steering wheel and I 
do not like that. I think that's the wrong way to do a pregen. For one thing, it's very hard on a player, um, especially if they're coming to the table. Usually you get a pregen at a convention setting, right? So they're learning you. Uh, they're learning the chemistry of the table, who the other people are at the table, how they're going to act, um, what the social situation's like. They're often learning the game. You may be teaching the rules. And you're also asking them now to not only learn how to play the particular class and character they've given, they're, uh, they're given, but also to internalize a backstory and uh, know when that's going to be relevant and you know to bring it into play at the right time. Uh, at this point, you're basically asking them to go on stage um, and read through a play with you without having ever looked at the script before. <laughs> and that's tough. I mean, it's not only tough, it's kind of insulting. So... I like uh, pre-gen character sheets with holes in them, you know, so I, I like basically um, it's cool for you to take care of some of the stuff for me ahead of time just to save time. Like if you want to go ahead and pick gear, um, you want to go ahead and assign my stats and say, well, you know, wizards, you, you kind of want your highest stat and intelligence, that kind of stuff. That's fine. Um, I can get all, you know, you can do all that. Uh, maybe don't pick my spells. Maybe let me pick the spells um, or if you, you know, or let me shop a little bit uh, before the thing starts to add some m- m- components that I want to, you know, if I've got a fictional idea in mind, something I want to do or how I want to play my character, um, you know, let me do that. Um, let me add a few quirks and personalities to the character. Don't tell me that stuff, right? Let me fill that in myself. And then as a GM, one of the best ways to, to sort of build story quickly is instead of writing things on the character sheet, you know, you ask questions at the beginning. Like I might ask you, um, hey, Laren, your character knows uh, Jeff's character from before. How did you, how did you guys meet? How did you know each other? Um, the last time you parted, uh, you parted either on friendly terms or or not. You know what? Which was it? And if you didn't part on friendly terms, why? Uh, you know what's what's unresolved between you? And those kind of questions I could have written on your character sheet. Um, you know, you know Jeff Jeff's character. You um, grew up in the same town together, and uh, you haven't seen each other for years. And he was always kind of a bully to you, so you've got that. You know, I could I could have written that into your character sheet, but that's my idea, not your idea. And if I want you to really inhabit that character and make it live, I need to let you help me build that character, right? I need to let you start um, start working your magic <laughs> and, and immediately uh, on that character and, and to make it your own so that you will bring surprises to the table, so that you'll bring a piece of yourself and your creative ideas into the character. Uh, so that's a, I mean, I, I think that's a, an important thing with pre-gens. You need to leave holes for players to, to pour themselves into. Um, and uh, more to the point, don't close it off such that it's, it's our everything's already predefined. So um, collaborative versus closed pregens, an important point. Hey Ray, man, I'm gonna have to start calling you the RPG prospector once again. You've struck gold for me, man. Sword and backpack. I just love the idea of that pasting rules into the front of the notepad or journal. I guess it's something I kind of do anyway. I I keep a GM's journal and I always take bits of different rules paste them in there and yeah kind of make this living rule book and and it ties in so well with your thoughts on emergent play it's like an emergent game that comes comes from playing it awesome stuff i've really really got into the idea of emergence in in play wouldn't be without it now i um I think I'm with you. I can't. I can't. 
pre-figure this stuff out and kind of almost bores me a little bit to do that now. So great one. Right on, Colin. Um, you and your brother remind me a lot of me and my brother. Uh, my brother is more, uh, well, let's put it this way. Uh, we're both creative, but I'm the sort of freeform artist. So my brother is more of the ruler and pencil artist. So uh, he even at one point, uh, he's an accountant and a systems manager. Uh, he's got dual degrees. He's a pretty smart dude. But he worked for a kitchen company at one point uh, who did kitchen renovations as an accountant. But uh, for fun, he would draw their elevation plans. So like when, uh, I don't know if elevation is the right word, but when, when somebody ordered cabinets, he would do a visualization of what those cabinets would look like in their house with like, you know, get out his drafting table and his colored pencils and everything and kind of draw up. A, and it was, re- I mean, he was really good at it. He's really good at it. And I, that's not me. Um, that's not the way I'm creative. I'm creative with, you know, just give me a bunch of sloppy materials and a blank canvas and, and an idea and I'll just, uh, I'll go at it. Right. You know, <laughs> hammer and tongs. Right. Um, I, and I and I don't even like uh, the part of art where you have to frame and or like, you know, stretch canvas or seal it up afterwards or, you know, I, I don't like all that. I just I'm all about getting the image down. And uh, so it's funny to think about different ways of being creative. And I, I, it comes back to my mind that this difference between, you know, emergent characters at the table and pre-planning characters, that you have to allow for both types of creativity. But there, uh, but there are some, some rough guidelines, which I have talked about uh, 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 ad nauseum at this point. So <laughs> let me do say this, though. Yes, I love this idea that Sword and Backpack has, and I think it may be the first time I've ever seen it, where you, the rules for your game are on a little pre-formatted page that you could glue into the front of a standard notebook. Now, standard notebook is a loaded term. Standard notebooks in, in the UK are probably of a different format than standard notebooks in the US, but there are some kind of rough sizes that you can play around with. There's that A5, I think it is, uh, you know, in the US, it's the trade paperback or... or um, or a digest size, so right around that six by nine format. If you keep yours well within that, you could probably fit in most, uh, you know, like diary-sized notebooks. And you could also, you know, offer up different formats for, for people. But I just love this idea of gluing, you know, pasting the rules into the front of a notebook that you're going to use for play. That's just fantastic, right? It's so good. Um, it's it's now you're saying you're reducing the clutter at the table for one thing you're saying okay you don't have to bring your notes and your your notebook and your handbook because you've got your handbook right in the front of your notebook and some people don't bring a notebook and now you're you're basically forcing them to bring a notebook so that they have something to write in so that they'll take notes and be creative in in you know and and be uh you know, journal and, and, uh, chronicle and record, you know, even if it's just, even if they're just writing down equipment lists and tracking ammo or whatever in there, it becomes very personal, uh, that, that thing, it makes the game personal. And I just really like that idea. Hey Ray, it's Colin, man. I just read your patron for what it's worth. Um, I've got faith in you, man. So just hang in there and, you know, I hope you're feeling a bit more upbeat soon. Um, as as it goes, I'm having one of those days where um, everything's just pissing me off. <laughs> so, uh, oh yeah, I'm I'm just knocked about stuff. Anyway, listen, um, all the best, mate. Look after yourself. 
<laughs> you're knocked about stuff, huh? <laughs> that's, that's good. That's a that must be a British phrase. If I tried that in conversation around here to be cool, everybody'd look at me like, "What the hell are you talking about?" But I like that. I'm, I'm all knocked. Yeah, knocked about. I don't know. It sounds like knocked up around here. So that's not maybe that's not good. <laughs> well, uh, listen. Um, Colin is referring to a post I put on Patreon probably two months ago at this point, but it was in the middle of or the beginning of a phase that I've been in, which is a little bit of a depression struggle. And just to be honest, I actually take uh, some medicine for depression. I take Prozac, uh, generic Prozac. It's a fairly light dose, and I take it daily. Uh, uh, and if you don't know what Prozac does, it actually it doesn't change your mood. It just keeps you your body from reabsorbing the... Um, Oh, I forget which chemical it is. I don't know if it's dopamine or whatever. One of the one of the chemicals that your body produces naturally that makes you feel decent. Um, you know, kind of your body's one of your body's chemical coping mechanisms. Um, it, it, as you get older, sometimes your body reabsorbs it very quickly, and you never. And I realized that I just never ever felt good. Like even after I exercised or was being very, you know, doing all the right things, that I still was just going through the motions. And uh, talked to my doctor about it. And I, at first, I said I don't really want anything. I think I'm good. And he said, Well, you know, if you keep feeling that way, come back. And about two weeks later, I'm practically crying at work. I just I don't I don't want to do anything. I can't get out of fun. And I so you know went back to talk to him about it. And he gave me a little bit of an inventory and he says, yeah, you're, he goes, like, we're going to try something because you're, you, you know, I have anxiety and depression and he says, it's, it's fairly serious. You need to, you know, you need to address it. And I said, okay. So I started taking this daily and it's actually uh, done wonders for me, but you know, it's still, it doesn't, it's not a cure all. Right. Um, and there's still times I go through this stuff and it's just, it's natural, um, not fun though. And I had put a, a, a post up on Patreon and I referenced the song by the Swans uh, called Failure, which is one of the most depressing songs you'll ever hear in your life. And yet when I'm depressed, I listen to it because it's so, it's so over the top that it becomes tongue in cheek that you have to start laughing at yourself a little bit when you listen to it because your your first response to it is to like be really into it like like yes this is how i feel and then you think oh my gosh this is so emo like <laughs> you know and you just kind of kind of forces you out of it a little bit uh it's i i listen to that song over and over until i start laughing and then and then i'm okay i think it's one of my ways of coping but it's rough sometimes, man, and we all go through it, and it's the crash, like I talked about before. It's part of the highs and lows. You can't have the highs without the lows. Um, if you're even keeled all the time, life gets kind of boring, so you have to hang in there and just deal with it and uh, realize that everything is cyclical and that it'll come around. So, But one of the things that really helps when you're in that spot is just to have people say, I got your back, you know, like, um, I'm with you, mate. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Uh, you know, I, I think one, one thing that people often do that isn't all that helpful is they try to fix you. So when somebody tells you they're depressed, don't go, don't immediately go through a litany of things that they should be doing. Uh, I've been guilty of this too, right? Well, you know, um, not everybody wants to be fixed. Sometimes they just want to tell you how they're feeling and you know, that's okay. Right. 
you don't have to immediately go, well, are you getting enough sleep? Are you, you know, are you eating right? Uh, are you drinking plenty of water? Uh, well then get over it, Sonny. You know, don't, don't give them the suck it up speech. Uh, don't try to diagnose them. Just say, Hey, I'm sorry you're feeling that way. That's enough. Right, you don't have to. You don't have to go on forever about it, or you know, hey, I sometimes feel. Sometimes I feel that way too. That's rough. Sorry, you're going through that. Um, it'll get better tomorrow. It'll be better tomorrow. You know, um, or is there anything I can do for you? That kind of, you know, that kind of just encouragement, like Colin just gave me. That's a big thing, man. It's a big thing. Um, keep it simple. Keep it straightforward. Keep it honest. Keep it from the heart, and you can't go wrong. Um, right, and uh, don't you know? Don't use thoughts and prayers. That one's, yeah. Everybody, if that's a joke now, um, it bec- it's become a thing where it, it's like the, <laughs> you know, it's like saying, uh, how you doing? And somebody, and everybody says, fine, you know, even when you're not fine or whatever, it's just a thoughts and prayers has become a hollow phrase. You really think about what you're saying and just uh, be honest, you know, be, be from the heart. Even, even a thought, if thoughts and prayers is from the hearts for you, if you really mean that you really do mean I'll be thinking about you or I, you really mean I'll be praying for you, then, then say that, um, you know, and let them know you mean it. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. But we need each other. We're, we're a social animal. I often think this about, if you look at dogs, for instance, uh, dogs are never happy if they're by themselves. They either have to be with people or other dogs. They have to be part of a pack to really be fulfilled. You know, obviously they can be happy by themselves for a while, but you can't leave a dog for a week by itself and expect it to be okay when you get back. Um, it has to be, you know, with other people or in a kennel with other dogs or something like that. Otherwise it's, it's going to be, you're going to get back and it's going to be a wreck, right? It's not going to be happy. It's going to be in a state um, of anxiety and separation and loneliness and humans, whether we, uh, even, even introverts, you know, like we don't like to admit it, but we need other people. We need to be with our pack at times, uh, just as much as we need to be alone at times, but it's, it's important for us to stick together and, uh, you know, that's, that's a good message, I think, in this reactionary shooting at each other, literally or metaphorically, um, age that we, that we live in, in America, at least, where, um, everything is just so vitriolic and, and amplified, um, that it's just more, more important than ever to, to be real with each other and to be understanding and, and, uh, calm and, you know, from the heart and as understanding as we can be and, you know, with each other, because uh, that's the only way out of this stuff, right? All right. Hey, wow, that got really deep. There's your, there's your uh, Doc Otis moment for the, for the podcast. <laughs> be good to each other. That's all I'm trying to say. Be good to each other. And that's as good a way as any to end this 99th podcast of Plunder Grounds. I'd like to thank you all for calling in. I'm sorry it has taken me so long to get some of these calls on the air. They're all gold. I leave very few call-ins behind. I find they're all really helpful to me. They're all interesting. They bring about interesting thoughts. They help me get to questions that I want to think about that I would have never gotten to without your call-ins. As Frank T. uh, often says, your ideas make my ideas better, and I'll be 
a little more mercenary about it and say, your ideas become my ideas. <laughs> I like to appropriate them. But seriously, thank you for feeding the podcast. Thank you for making the podcast better and for pushing it in directions that I would never get to alone. And uh, so that gives me more breadth of things to talk about and helps me address things that other people are probably wondering as well. I used to teach at a university and one of the things that I always told kids was, you know, attendance isn't mandatory at college, um, but I try to make it such that if you're not here, you're going to miss something. And, you know, so show up every day. I'm not going to take attendance, but you're, it's, it's your own risk if you don't show up. But one of the things you show up for is, you know, you pay to be in a classroom with other people. And sometimes there's a question that you have that you're too afraid to ask or, or that you haven't really even formulated in your head yet. And somebody else will ask the question and you think, yes, that's the question I want answered. And it's really important to have that environment, right? So that we can, so that these questions come up and so that we can get to the topics that need to, that we need to hit. I've always found it very difficult to look at a list of things and figure out what's missing. You know, when you're, when you're building a list of things like shopping, let's say just groceries, so you're putting out a list of groceries and you do your best to think of everything you need, but invariably there's something that you need that you're not thinking about that's on that list and you'll discover it later when you get home and you go for it and you're like, ah, ah, I should have got peanut butter or whatever it was, right? Um, it's always hard to find the thing that you don't, that you, to think of the thing that you're missing. And, uh, that's as an organism, as a communal organism, we're just much, we're just much better at that. So that's awesome. Uh, next episode will be number 100 in which we have a few call-ins and take a look back and kind of celebrate season one, put a little bow on it, right? Wrap it up and get started on season two. I'm not going to change a whole lot. I've asked for feedback on, you know, what people like, what they don't like about the podcast. And a lot of the feedback I've gotten is don't change anything, which is very flatter at, uh, flattering. I started to say flabbergasting. So flattergasting, flabber, flabbering, what? <laughs> it's both of those things. It's, it's, uh, it's a little shocking to me. I often feel like I just ramble and abuse your time a little bit. I try not to do that. I try to have co coherent thoughts and try to get to, to a topic and stay on topic, um, or at least eventually finish off the topic if I go far afield, uh, window out, as I like to say. But I've been assured that people like that. And uh, cool, that's good. That means I can just be me and not worry about it too much. I appreciate all that positive feedback. I always like to ask, though, because you never know. I don't want to take it for granted that people are enjoying what I'm doing and that I'm communicating, right? The whole point of communicating is that somebody has to be on the other end and want to hear it. Um, and I don't want to podcast uh, things that people don't want to hear because I can just think those on my own or whatever, right? Uh, so it takes all of us to make a better podcast, and I really appreciate it. I really, really, really appreciate all the call-ins So and uh, for your support of what I'm doing. And going forward, like I said, um, you know, it's going to be pretty much the same old me there'll be a few few little surprises, a few little things I've got planned, but all positive, and um, I'm looking forward to it. Season two, it's going to be fun. Going to stay focused on gaming and books and other things I like to do, draw, that kind of stuff, all nerd hobbies. Going to try to stay away from, 
you know, anything that, uh, you know, we get enough politics and arguments and real world situations outside of that, that I'm sure you've got your full slate of that to mess around with and to deal with. And I do too. Um, and this isn't the space in which to address those things, at least not for me. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stay focused on the, on the nerd world, man. And on, on all the fun stuff. So, and we'll all learn and grow together. Okay. Let's, uh, Let's wrap this one up. I'm Ray Otis signing off. And you know where to find me, www.rayotis.com. That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. And Logan Howard does my amazing theme song, which will always be my, my amazing theme song. And he does the Swordbreaker Zenon podcast, and you should really go check both of those things out because they're very cool. He has a Patreon where you can support him and get access to all those things. Um, I guess that's it other than to give you my usual look out for rust monsters oh wait that's not quite it <laughs> if you haven't called in for the 100th then you want to please still do there's still time and uh it, i've got a contest going to name the rust monster so and uh, the winner is going to get a full set of print zines i'm going to print especially up uh, all the zines that i've made in my in my mini games and stick them all in a big envelope with some cardboard on either side to keep them nice and, and pristine. And I'll ship that anywhere in the world to whoever is the person who comes up with the best name for the rust monster. I have been uh, fighting just calling him or her rusty. Uh, um, he or she does not have a gender yet either. So feel free to suggest that as well. But, uh, uh, you know, rusty is a little too on the nose for me, I think. <laughs> maybe it, maybe it should be rusty though. So people who start the podcast late won't know, you know, will know what the heck I'm doing when I, when I refer to that. Um, but yeah, I want to name my rest monster. So get on it. You've got, you know, a couple days left before I hit number 100. So let me hear from you.